Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for the inspired Word of God. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free just like that Word promises it will. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us and reminding us that you are the sovereign in this universe. And that's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. And even though our flesh sometimes bucks it, and we know that the general world bucks it horribly, uh, it's beautiful. Your sovereignty is beautiful, and orienting to your authority is also equally as beautiful. Thank you for the opportunity to do that in time, despite our flesh. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to set us free from the bondage of sin, to make an evening like this one a reality even. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the difficult passage is Grace and Works, Part 10. Uh, not surprised that this particular um, channel, if you were, to this particular um, addition to the Difficult Passages series is already at Part 10. I mean, it's Grace and Works, and if you haven't figured it out yet, uh, Grace is the linchpin of the Gospel. Uh, and Satan has done a masterful job at muddying the waters. Uh, go to Luke 18.24. Luke 18.24. We'll start with one of the passages that, frankly, when you're talking about the gospel for so long, um, and when you're looking for certain passages that personify it or embody the gospel itself, and you're looking to net out the gospel, uh, this one, for me, comes to mind. Uh, and we'll see why in a moment. Luke 18, 24. And Jesus looked at him, this is the rich young ruler, and said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, and this is these two verses coming up here are, the ones I alluded to earlier, then who can be saved? Honestly. Who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Who can be saved? And all this emphasis on what it means to be saved. Who can make something that's dead alive? Who can do that? Not just bring a gavel down. Who can make a dead person alive? It's certainly not man. No matter how much we want to make ourselves alive, uh, we can't. Who can be saved? And this gets into that realm of the supernatural. I mean, who can describe everything that goes on at salvation? I can't. I'm very grateful that he's given me the faith to believe it and to live it. Um, but I'm not going to pretend that I understand all that happens. I understand the fundamentals, don't get me wrong. I understand soteriology, of course. But what does it mean to take a dead thing and make it alive again? Um, 
It's incredible. God gives grace to who? Okay. Humility. Quote, I want to, but I know that I am unable. I want to, but I know that I'm unable. This is what true humility looks like in its rawest form. I want a relationship with you, Lord God. I want this thing. I want out of this thing that I was born into. I want away from death, and I want life. But who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. So in its rawest form, that's what it looks like. I, I, I want these things. I hear you. I hear the gospel. I, I, I want it. But I, don't, I can't do it. That's a humble heart in its rawest form. That's the person who says, you do it. <laughs> and God says, bingo. Now I've got something to work with. I think of the apostles who said to the Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17, uh, 5. Increase our faith. Wonderful. We should all pray for this. I mean, because with God, all things are possible. How do you increase your own faith? By what? Doing things in human power? By, you know, na 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 Nobody? Caddyshack? No? Just willing it into the hole? Just, just willing faith? You know what I mean? Chevy Chase? Nobody? That doesn't work that way. We don't even give ourselves faith. <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. Who can describe what faith is? Can you? I know what the results are. I know what it is like to have it, and I know what it's like not to have it. I know that. But I know that I wasn't responsible for receiving it. How could I be? It's perfect. This is humility. So this describes the posture of a humble person before receiving God's grace. And do me a favor, don't make this a timeline issue. You know, consider it a state of mind, a state of being, um, humility, an ever-present attitude. So someone might ask, well, how do I know when God has granted me, you know, this or that faith? Well, what does Scripture say? Go to 1 Corinthians 2.10. 1 Corinthians 2.10. So the humble person says, I can't do it. Lord, do it for me. And then afterwards, you know, um, the person might ask, well, how do I know I have it now? Because it's not like some, you know, it's not always some stupendous epiphany that happens in your life or all of a sudden you're able to leap buildings with a single bound. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So we have that on our side, don't we? The Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. So if there's anyone that we're filled with that understands that we can relate to, whose primary ministry even is to teach us and minister to us, it's the Spirit. And that's what Jesus sent the Spirit for, was to help us. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So it's, he has an exclusive right to it, so to speak. 
He is our access point in many ways. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Hmm. So that's the mechanism. So the spirit plums the depths of God, and then he reveals those things to us. Thank God. Because we can't do these things on our own. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, the answer to the question that precipitated our visiting this passage, how do I know when God has granted me this or that faith, the answer is that the Holy Spirit will convict you. I mean, He's the one, again, it plums the depths of God. He's also been given to us uh, in a special ministry in our lives to reveal to us. Uh, not just that we're saved, we know that uh, from John's epistles and, and such, but also um, on matters of faith in general. The best place to start uh, also is with the one who was born filled with the Spirit and also possessed perfect humility and faith, Jesus Christ. I want to show you something, and this is um, a very big deal, uh, on the subject of how do I know. Uh, go to Matthew 26, 42. Matthew 26, 42. There's some, front end, there's some front end work that the Spirit is certainly involved in. Um, it has to do with faith. It results in things like obedience, like authority orientation, like uh, understanding the sovereignty of God and embracing it. Matthew 26, 42. He went away again a second time, this is Jesus, and prayed saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Another incredible statement in Scripture. Another sort of net-net statement in Scripture. I mean, just think of all that was on Jesus' shoulder, shoulders at that time, getting ready to be the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. So much he sweat blood. So, and then he says, your will be done. He's saying, if this cup can't pass away from my drinking it, your will be done. That, my friends, is humility. And we have to put these things together now. Because Jesus was subservient to the Father. His will. Your will be done. This is the sign of a truly humble heart that has been given faith. It is evidenced when two hearts agree or confess the same thing. Now, we have a unique situation since God doesn't move. He's immutable. So if we're going to confess the same thing, it's always man learning if you would, a growing up or a receiving faith, to confess what is absolutely true concerning God. So in other words, we're always the one to reconcile, move to the perfect God. That's what I'm getting at. And this is a sign of truly humble heart that's been given faith. It is evidence when two hearts agree or confess the same thing. Since God is immutable, He never changes, it is man whose faith is reconciled to God. I mean, you can have all kinds of faith. It doesn't always have to be even real. It can be human faith. It can be all kinds of faith. But if you want a faith that reconciles you or a faith that brings you to God, 
um, and results in even inner thoughts like your will be done, then that faith has to reconcile you to God. Furthermore, on your will be done, it is this reconciliation to God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. It's this reconciliation to God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. Your will be done. That's the ultimate in authority orientation. Your will be done. That's the antithesis of man's will in the flesh, right? Your will be done. That's the ultimate in authority orientation. Go to Matthew 6, 8. Jesus Christ even, look, when he taught us how to pray, in context, he was teaching his disciples, pray this way. Think about it. This is, this, you know, there's no absence of congruity in the Bible. Matthew 6, 8. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then this way. In other words, I know how to pray. You pray this way. <laughs> I don't have a problem with authority orientation. I, don't, I, I, I do follow my Father's will implicitly. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Jesus states clearly that our Father already knows what we need before we ask Him. So then why would Jesus suggest that we pray God's will be done? I mean, why is that part of the prayer that He's teaching us even today to pray? God already knows everything. God already knows what He wants. He already knows what you're going to need before you even pray to Him. But Jesus says He wants you to pray. And I've taught you this, that prayer is as much more about you than God, obviously. God desires these things, but it's not because He doesn't know anything or He's, oh my, I didn't know you wanted that. <laughs> it's about you, right? It's about you and fellowship with God in a special way so that He can reveal certain things. In other words, you open yourself up to Him this way, and you say, Your will be done. That changes everything. Not my will be done. Your will be done. I don't know about you all, but in my own prayer life, it could always get better. Um, over the years, it's moved. You know, when you're younger and ignorant, it goes from... Dad, can I have this? Father, can I have that? Can you fix this? Can you heal that person? Can you do? And it's like this laundry list. And now it's always your will be done. If my will and your will coincide, then that's what I'm praying for. And that's what Jesus said, your will be done. And that's the sign of humility. So why would Jesus suggest that we pray God's will be done? Well, that simply means that Jesus desires that his sheep meditate, for lack of a better term, on the simple fact that our Father is sovereign. That our Father is sovereign. As Scripture clearly describes, we are predestined, quote, called for this purpose, 1 Peter 2.21, to orient to the sovereign God of the universe. 
It's part of our calling. Your will be done. Part of our calling is to orient to the sovereign God of the universe. We are born disoriented. We are born disoriented, therefore we must seek orientation. Go to 1 Peter 2.21. 1 Peter 2.21. We're born disoriented. We need to orient. And there's no way on earth you can orient to a sovereignty without authority orientation as part of the deal. That's what it means to orient. I mean, when you're orienting to a sovereignty, it's implicitly authority orientation because you're orienting as a subservient, if you would, as a slave. That's what it means to orient to a sovereign. It's not orienting peers or like I drew this way. It's this way. And so if you're going to orient to the sovereign God, then it's implied that you are authority-oriented. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. What did Jesus say in the garden? Your will be done. That was His example, keeping in context for tonight's discussion, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Anybody doubt that Jesus was authority-oriented? I hope not. Really. But that was his example. He was ultra-authority-oriented, perfectly authority-oriented. And he left us. We were called to this, for this purpose, and we were left an example to follow his steps. Verse 22, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, so in other words, in following God's will, he was basically persecuted. So some of you can already start relating. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You see what the result is, in other words. He fulfilled the Father's will, said, I'm going to leave the judgment up to God for now. Okay, I'm going to fulfill my Father's will right now, while I'm here. And others benefited. Now that's a big lesson, a practical lesson for a lot of people. When you follow God's word, even when you suffer unjustly, Others benefit. See, we're too myopic, though. We think, oh, no, it's all about me. I, I'm just tired of suffering for Jesus. I'm tired. It's all about me. And, you know, maybe God will discipline me, and it's all about me. And maybe, okay, I'll get, you know, disciplined this way or that way, and it's all about me. And it's, oh, but if I do it good, it's still about me. See how good I am? Me, 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 me. Well, what about everybody else? What about the fact that he could be having you suffer so that somebody else could be blessed? Or learn or empathize or something. You don't know. I mean, our perfect example is Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, went to a cross, suffered unjustly. The last thing he was thinking about, quote-unquote, was himself. He was thinking about all of us. And that perfectly coincided with God's will. Your will be done. Even when he prayed. Even when he taught us how to pray. 
Pray this way. Your will be done. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's put this into perspective now. Again, we're hovering around authority orientation now for three lessons. It's important. Like I said, you can't orient. You're born disoriented. You can't orient to an, uh, an authority without authority orientation. You can't orient to a sovereign God without authority orientation. You don't need any other reason than the Lord who has commanded you to submit, to submit. I mean, in other words, that should be good enough. No human authority is perfect, yet all authority is delegated by God. Your focus needs to be on this fact, not the failures of those in authority. Because that's what, you know, look, come on, let's, let's face it. Let's just face it, come on. How is Satan undermining the authority in our own country? <clears throat> Get the camera out. You see that cop right there? He's hitting that guy. And yes, it's wrong. But that guy, that cop represents about 0.0001% of the rest of the, the police force. But yet that becomes the thing that Satan uses to disparage authority orientation to policemen in general. He's a genius at it. He says, let's get all the little corner cases to disprove the general. And they literally are corner cases. There's bad seeds everywhere. And it's not even about the cops. I could use another example, whatever, politics, however we'd like to look at it. Even pastors. You know, see that guy? He's making a million. He's a whatever. He's a crook. Yeah, he is a crook. But what about the rest of the guys that are actually doing it? You know? And that's what Satan does. So your, your focus needs to be on these facts, not the failures of those in authority. Even Jesus obeyed the authorities. And they were often wrong, or wronging him personally, weren't they? And he always obeyed. This was his example. 1 Peter 2.21 states that Jesus has left you an example for you to follow in his steps. Well, what was his example? It was to suffer unjustly at times. And in doing so, others were healed. So you follow God's plan. Your will be done. It may be uncomfortable. You may suffer, but others are affected. Others may even benefit and be healed. Verse 24, again, he said, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Up here on the board, his example, suffering for others. This is the value of authority orientation. Why? Because God's omniscient and we're not. If he says, do this thing, then do it. That's it. And if, if you think something's wrong or something doesn't seem right, do it anyways. Otherwise, it's not real authority orientation. Suffering for others. Jesus suffered unjustly for the sake of others. Now, think about this. If we are to, quote, follow his steps from 1 Peter 2.21, that is, is it fair to say that we too might follow his pattern and others may be healed? I don't mean in the strict sense that he healed, but in some smaller way. Is it possible that if we remain authority-oriented and we leave all the judgment stuff up to God, that even when we're suffering unjustly, someone might benefit? It could even be the, the boss that's mistreating you. You know, like heap coals on their head? They know when they're mistreating you. They do. 
They may not admit it. (laughs) And if you respond in a godly way, the way Jesus said, turn the other cheek even, then you're going to heap burning coals on their head. And you don't know what God has in store in that situation with their soul. That might be the one thing that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. Don't know. But we don't know a lot of things, do we? That's the point. We don't know a lot of things. So maybe we should just pay attention to the God of the universe. Maybe we ought to just orient to the authority in our lives and whatever he delegates to boot. Nothing could be more unpleasant than dying on the cross the way Jesus did, yet he did it willingly, John 10, 18. Why? Because, as he stated himself, your will be done. That's why. He even got in that mode, right? If this cup can pass from me, just saying, (laughs) but your will be done. So he hung on a cross because that was the plan, because that was his Father's will. And his will and his Father's will did this. You see? And that's where we want to get to in our own lives. This is why at previous points, this is what we were getting at with your will be done. This is the sign of a truly humble heart that has been given faith. It is evidenced when two hearts agree, confess the same thing. Since God is immutable, He never changes, it means man's faith is reconciled to God. Matthew 26, 42 and 6, 10. It's this reconciliation to God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. I mean, what happens when you read the Bible? You learn more about what? God's will. The more you read about God's will, the more the opportunity is to what? Align with it. That's authority orientation. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, that's what it, if it says do this, then that's what it says. <laughs> if it says obey this person, then obey that person. If it says submit to this person, then submit to that person. I mean, it's God's will. And you either want to orient to his authority or you don't. And I would argue, and if I had Lois up here and probably Bill too, they'd be stomping their feet saying, yes, authority, authority, authority orientation, because they know how important it is. I don't mean to single you out, but they're on in their age, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> and they're, you know, I mean, is it fair to say they're, they're happy people? Like, you know, if there is such a thing as being more mature in the spiritual life, there they are. And they are ultra-authority-oriented when it comes to God. Sorry to point you out that way. But we've had a lot of discussions about it. It's this reconciliation to God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. You might be saying, what does any of this have to do with grace and works? (laughs) Actually, a lot. That's the point. A lot. It actually really does a lot. Because without authority orientation, how do you receive grace? Subjectively? Well, I don't like that one. And I'm not going to take it. Well, then you're not authority oriented. Just saying. So it has a lot to do with grace and works. Up here on the board, this almost sounds like a circular statement, and I apologize, but this is the only way. I looked at it for like five times, and I was like, all right, 
This is just what they're going to get. You can figure it out on your own with the, with the Spirit. Grace is foundational to authority orientation since authority orientation is a good work of faith. Huh? Grace is, the fo- is foundational to authority orientation since authority orientation is a good work of faith. Let me give you the more palatable conclusion, if you would. If this is true, and it is, then it stands to reason that a person who doesn't produce any good works is a person who rejects God's grace. Stands to reason that a person who doesn't produce any good works is a person who rejects God's grace. Now hold on to authority orientation as well. So tying this even further together, something that came up on Tuesday up here on the board, on grace and works, receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. Yeah. Okay, God goes, pow, right upside the head. You're like, what the? That was grace. Why? Because a father that loves his children disciplines them. And he does so, guess how? In grace. (laughs) So you have to respect the authority that just literally snapped you in the head or smacked you upside the head. And sometimes he might use a parent to do that. Receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. Authority orientation itself, think about it, is a grace gift. Obedience results in receiving more grace. This is the beauty of authority orientation. Obedience results in receiving more grace. This is a key element of the doctrine of grace upon grace. I taught you this years ago now. The idea of grace upon grace, that God's grace just keeps on giving. But you have to orient to Him. I mean, Jesus Christ said Himself, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. But if you're not oriented. So this is a key element of the doctrine of grace upon grace that commences with salvation. It begins with salvation. John 1.16, Matthew 13.12, etc. Okay, big picture now. So that's some foundational stuff to get us started. Big, big picture now. Back up for a second. Arguably one of the most accurate representations of all of this is through the house analogy. I think Scott brought it up. Uh, the other day, the house analogy. Just picture it this way, okay? All theology aside, let's just imagine. We're members of God's own household, okay? Where He is the sovereign power. Within this household, God sets all the rules because He has the sovereign right to do so, with emphasis on right. Who has the right to set the rules in the house? The authority. He may delegate, but who has the ultimate right to set the rules in the house? The authority, right? Well, we're talking about God's house. And if we're children, if we're saved, we're children of His, so there we are in His house. Okay? So emphasis on right. Unless He has delegated authority to others in the household, like you know, parents, husbands, pastors, etc., no one else has the right to demand anything. So even if it's delegated, it's still his authority. That's how delegation works. Okay, I don't want to get into the nuances of that. Hopefully you can understand that. But here's the point the Spirit's getting at, for starters. On sovereignty. Sovereignty comes down to who has the rights 
in the equation, so to speak. Who has the rights? Do you? Or does God? Who has the right to do this or that? That's what sovereignty comes down to. And that's where people get confused. Anti-authority oriented people are confused. They think they have the right to question authority. All, like, verbi you know, ad nauseum. Always. Forever. That's their modus operandi. They question authority. That's what this country is teaching young children nowadays. Always, a question, always question authority. Always. Why? Because I saw the video. I saw that video. And I saw that politician. I saw that crooked pastor. And I saw this guy. You know, I saw this parent abusing their child. I saw... This is what this country is teaching our children, to question authority. Well, do you have that right? If God gave the authority, do you have that right? That's between you and the Lord. I know what he's saying to, to me through Scripture. And do not use corner cases to justify your ridiculous right now. You know exactly what the Spirit's saying. We're talking about theology. We're talking about general case. So don't get ridiculous. Sovereignty comes down to who has the rights. Unless God has given you rights, you have none. For example, no man has ever been given the right to put God on trial or challenge his authority. And I'm not talking about free will, I'm talking about the right. If God is sovereign of the universe, you don't have that right. You don't go into the local circuit court and say, Hey, judge, I'm putting you on trial. Don't work that way. Sorry, son. We're talking about the sovereign God of the universe. We don't have that right. But yet people do it all the time. This is why we say something is unrighteous. You know, like, literally, unright. Unrighteous. It's because the perpetrator does not have the right to do what they are doing. In God's house, God has all the rights by default. So let's play this out a bit. Pretend all of God's children, believers, are seated around the kitchen table having supper. The first child says to the father, Father, I'd like to go out to the park tomorrow and evangelize some folks. God says, sure thing. You know I want all to be saved and come to the knowledge of me. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. Another child speaks up and says, Father, I'd like to tell my stubborn, unbeliever friend that you are so very loving that you will save them and then let them decide later regarding the lordship of Jesus. God says, no way, my child. You are insulting me right now. You have no right to pervert my son's gospel to try to broaden the gate to salvation. Repent. If this second child is miffed and they run off the next day and disobey the father, we say that their work is unrighteous, unright. Because they don't even have the right to what? Misrepresent God. They're unright. So we say they're unrighteous because they had no right to do that thing. This kind of unholy activity regarding the gospel happens all the time nowadays, despite having scripture that says people have no right to misrepresent God. No right. What right do we have to misrepresent God or any aspect of Him, especially His grace? 
unrighteousness, not right. The last thing we need to do is encourage the flesh and others, especially regarding salvation. A dead man that thinks he can do something good is gravely mistaken. They are truly deceived. Life itself has been counterfeited. That's what you see all around you in this world. Life itself has been counterfeited. The Bible describes unbelievers as unrighteous because their works are not right. They are not alive. They are dead. They're not your will be done. They're my will be done. That's a complete disorientation from God. The Bible describes unbelievers as unrighteous because their works are not right. They are not alive. They are dead. This is why the Bible describes an unbeliever as being dead in their sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. Up here on the board. Now, God has every right to demand. So God's right to demand. If God demands good works from His own children, and He does, He creates them in such a way that they are able to do what is right. Only a, quote, living person is able to produce anything. A dead person cannot. Don't believe me? Go to the morgue tonight and ask them to sit up and, I don't know, repeat the Lord's Prayer. I don't know. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. A dead person can't do anything. So the beauty about what God demands from us is if He always precedes these things with what? Grace. If God demands good works from His own children, He creates them in such a way that they are able to do what is right. Only a living person is able to produce anything. A dead person cannot. And here's the pinnacle of my thoughts. It, was, it happened this morning, but it's, it was just put into words more this morning. But it's been something that's been sort of coming up in my own studies and something that I think the Holy Spirit's been teasing us as a congregation, sort of leading us. You know, there's certain doctrinal points that take some time to massage to get to. In other words, you have to sort of cut this out and that out and manage this thing and that thing just so you're the right perspective into the rose bush. And then he says, look, now you look right now. It's almost like when you're going by something, you can't see it, can't see it. They go, look now, you know, when you happen to see it, but then two seconds later, it's gone. It's about getting us sometimes positioned in just the right place to see this subtle thing. Because Satan's very subtle, very, very subtle the way he goes about perverting things, especially God's grace. So you have to concentrate because it's a very subtle, though very important point up here on the board. Two gospel perversions. Now I want you to read this slowly. People talk about adding to salvation. You know, faith plus works equals, uh, equals salvation. We know that's garbage, right? There's nothing man can do, and man's works are in view. Faith plus man's works equals salvation. That points to legalism. We know that's garbage. However, how often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion? The other one. You're like, there's another one? There's another one. If we're to categorize it this way, just go with it. Don't make a doctrine out of it. Just go with what the Spirit's saying. How often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion? Subtracting from salvation. How about that one? Faith minus God's works equals salvation. 
That too is a perversion. And I'm going to string this together for you so that you hopefully understand what the Spirit's trying to be getting us to all this time, for a long time now. People don't seem to have a problem with understanding what it means to add to salvation and that's an abomination and that's legalism and we know that everything's you know, by grace through faith, lest any man may boast. We get that. But what about the other perversion, the more subtle one, where people subtract from salvation? In other words, it's faith minus God's works equals salvation, pointing to religions that actually subtract some of God's grace in saving man. Subtract God's grace in the actual act of salvation. The Bible clearly states that man has no right, guess what, to add or what? Subtract from the truth. Go to Deuteronomy 4.2. Deuteronomy 4.2. So this is a very subtle point that's been coming up for a long time now. It just hasn't been uh, articulated the way it is on the board right now. But there are two, if you think of the, you know, the narrow way, if you think of the narrow gate, there's sort of two sides you can fall on. Sort of the legalist, the adding to, adding to salvation or adding to faith or subtracting from salvation. There's two sides that are both an error. There's a narrow right way, but there's two errors, two categories of errors. What does Deuteronomy 4.2 say? You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. So to put that in perspective, if God's word says that this is the grace that is completed at salvation, this is the saving work of God, this is what he does by grace in you, you have nothing to do with it. And the only way for you to be saved or delivered from what you were born in to being made alive in Christ from dead to alive is if all these things happen by grace. And you don't get to subtract from that truth either. You don't get to put yourself in the equation and add to it, but you certainly don't get to subtract from it either. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Okay, so we cannot only criticize legalism just because it's the, quote, easier perversion to identify. We must, in integrity, understand that some religions actually subtract from God's plan for salvation. They do this by supposing. Now, listen up. They do this by supposing that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. That's the proposition. It's the other perversion, if you would. Either, God's, either man's adding to it or he's subtracting from it. And when he's subtracting from it, the only thing to subtract from is something pure and good, which would be the whole plan of salvation. So he's actually subtracting from God's works. Not adding his own in this case. He's subtracting from what God does. So the proposition in subtracting from salvation is that God actually supposedly does less than he does when he saves a person. The example we keep coming back to is 
just focusing on forensics, just focusing on the gavel coming down, just focusing on mental ascent, just focusing on believe these facts, just focusing on these things. What happened to the rest of God's grace in delivering us from that to this? What happened? Yeah, there's some very real practical things that happen. So we must, in integrity, understand that some religions actually subtract from God's plan for salvation. They do this by supposing that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. And it may sound, quote, odd at face value. You know, why would anyone ever want less than all of God's grace? Sounds stupid, right? It's like, it's free, it's God's grace, it's perfect. It sounds stupid. But as the Spirit's been pointing out, Man likes to assume sovereignty. Tashuka. Man wants to lord over God. That's the flesh. Man likes to assume sovereignty and therefore the rights to dictate how much of God's grace he will receive at salvation. Do you see the issue here? Now I'm going to iron it out for you. It's the same fundamental issue that the legalists have. Let me explain. It's the same fundamental issue that the legalists have. It's just the flesh trying to establish its own righteousness a.k.a. the ability to do what is right all over again. Only this time, when it subtracts from the gospel, it doesn't add its own works to the equation, at least not right away. It's forced to later on. Only this time, when it subtracts from the gospel, it doesn't add its own works to the equation, at least not right away. Instead, it subtracts some of God's good work at salvation, leaving a chasm that it can fill later on. Let me see if I can drive this home a little further for you. Again, there's two general perversions, two gospel perversions. The only difference between the, quote, adding to salvation perversion and the, quote, subtraction from salvation, one, is the timing of the flesh's own works. It's a timing issue. But at the end of the day, the flesh still wants to do something. He just says, I'm going to do it at salvation, for salvation, or I'm going to subtract some of God's grace, and then I'm going to be liable personally to it later on. The prior injects human works at the point of salvation. The latter injects them later. Both perversions are unrighteous because man never has the right to supplant God's grace in any good work before or after salvation. It's the same problem. Both perversions, it's the same root cause. You know, it's the six degrees of separation from what? Arrogance. It's always the same problem. I wrote a book called Religion by Any Other Name, and it alluded to some of this. 
It's because it's the same problem. There's just different manifestations of it. This one just happens to be a little more subtle. I also wrote a book called Covert Arrogance. This one just tends to be a little more subtle for people to understand. You say, but why would anyone do that? Because it suits them. It allows them to dice up God and control God and make God their little puppet. But the Word of God, Deuteronomy 4.2, do not add or subtract from the truth, from the Word. If God says, I do all this at salvation, guess what happens at salvation? He does it all. You don't have the right. Do you understand? You're not the sovereign. You don't have the right to suppose anything but what the Bible says. It's unrighteous. So the only difference between adding to salvation and subtracting from salvation is the timing of the flesh's own works. The prior injects human works at the point of salvation, the latter injects them later. Both perversions are unrighteousness because man never has the right to supplant God's grace in any good work before or after salvation. Because of the subtlety of the principle on the board, some of you need to write it down and dwell on it for a while. It literally took me years to, quote, see this perversion as clearly as I do now. Honestly, it's probably the first time I wrote it down. I've had discussions uh, with a few people in the past on the subject. But now I think this might be the first time I actually wrote it down and shared it with you all. But that is true. That there are, there are whole religions out there, and they don't have to have names, that suppose that it's God, God's grace, they sub, that they're able to subtract from God's grace in God's plan for salvation. Why? The only reason is for fleshly reasons. It's the only reason. I mean, isn't that what the, we just reviewed that, the rich young ruler, isn't that what he wanted? He wanted that gospel. He wanted the one that said, I'll do whatever it takes to get eternal life. In other words, I want, I want the goodie bag. I want the gavel to come down and, and I'm, you know, deemed uh, justified. Um, but I don't want the other part that includes delivering me from the self-life. But that is part of grace. I mean, one of, the, one of the most amazing things that God does in your life at salvation is deliver you from the self-life. Isn't it? I mean, it, you may say, oh, man, I still struggle with it. Of course you do. You have a flesh. But you, have, you were dead in that life, in that realm, and made alive. There are real practical ramifications of that. That's the point. And the one that the Spirit keeps coming back to, the obvious one, is works. If I give you this grace, then you're going to produce good fruit. You're going to produce works. Otherwise, who decides, in a perverted theology, who decides that they're going to do good works? You have to think about these things. That's all I'm going to give you right now. Just know that there are two major perversions that stray from the Bible. And it's not just adding, it's not just legalism. There's a subtle one. 
that I'm trying to explain to you. And it took me years to see it as clearly as I do, probably because I had to peel back an onion along the way. But I also think about why did it take so long, and I suppose because Satan is a masterful genius at hiding such things. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3. You've got to remember, Satan's a genius. Seriously. And then you have to ask yourself, which one is harder to deal with and which one is more of an infestation? If that makes sense. Which one's more um, powerful at the end of the day? Overt or covert? Let me ask you a question. If someone says, right, I'm going to sock you in the nose right now, you're going to go like this, right? If they don't say anything, they just walk up and blast you in the face. Okay, which one's harder to deal with? The overt or the covert? Right? Satan's really smart. Really smart. He says, yeah, go ahead. Focus on this other stuff. Focus on legalism. Focus on it. I'll get a bunch of people involved in that because their flesh is so weak. But I've got a whole other kind of arrogance involved in this other one. This other kind of religion that subtracts God's grace from the equation. The parts that it doesn't like. Like the rich young ruler wanted and Jesus saw right through him. Right through him. Like nothing. He wasn't dealing with the wrong stuff there. He was dealing with a type of arrogance. Second Corinthians 11.3. You know, Jesus didn't just correct the Pharisees. Let me put it that way. Second Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that, <clears throat> as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Go to verse 13 now. So, in other words, Paul's got certain, you know, shepherd or pastoral fears. I get it. Verse 13. He says, for such men, these guys that are going to try to lead you astray. I mean, come on. If you've got any education whatsoever, right, it's going to take a little work to lead let's just for lack of a better term, an intelligent person away. I don't mean to say that in the wrong way. I hope you know what I'm getting at. <clears throat> We're not all irrational, in other words. Satan has to come up with devices that are ingenious. Let's put it that way. And Paul knew it. Paul was dealing a lot with Gnostics, intelligent people who wanted to rationalize their way into heaven. And they were smart enough to say, well, I can't add works to the equation, but maybe, just maybe, I can do something else to get my way. I can subtract some of God's grace from the equation, and I'll run with that theology. These are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even guess what Satan does? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their, de their deeds. The point is that Satan is very, very smart. Again, the point on the board. <clears throat> the only difference between the adding to salvation perversion and the subtracting from salvation one is timing of the flesh's own works. That's what I want you to focus on. Both perversions are unrighteous because man never has the right to supplant God's grace in any good work, before or after salvation. Why do you think Paul also wrote, go to 2 Corinthians 13.5? Why did he write 2 Corinthians 13.5? Because he was worried. He was afraid that some people thought they were saved and they weren't. That's why. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. Paul had a real fear that people were allowing false gospels to propagate. And in some ways, it was this other type of gospel, this one that subtracted from salvation. And that worried him, just like it worries me now. I don't want that stuff in your souls. I, I had it in my own soul for years. So there's a continuum. It's not like we're all, you know, angels of light, you know, deceptive agents of Satan. I'm not saying that. Some are. And we know what Satan's design is. But doctrines have a way of getting into our souls and ruining good things, including our perspective about what God does at salvation. And we like them, we accept them, because it appeals to our flesh. That's what the Spirit's trying to say. There's not only one appeal to the flesh when it comes to false gospels. One is legalism. I would call that the, co the overt version, the overt perversion, right? Do more, puff myself up in public. No, 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 let me do the baskets and, you know, this kind of thing, and I'll, I'll go sweep the floors, and I'll help old ladies, and, you know, it's like an overt perversion of the gospel. But then there's the covert one. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to subvert God's grace during salvation. I'm going to pervert the entire subject of soteriology by subtracting some of God's good works from the equation. And when I do that, then I'm left with this. Oh, shucks, right? I'm left with the truth, and then I have to take Scripture, twist it so that it fits into this perversion. And what happens, what have we learned? Whenever you do something here, there's a trickle effect, and it goes like this. The further you get away from the error, the bigger it gets. The problem is, by the time you're way out here, you're confused as all hell. And you're like, what the? Why am I confused after decades of learning the Word of God? It says simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It says God's not the God of confusion. He's the God of peace. Why do I have so much unrest in my own soul? Why? Go back to the source. It's incredible. It's like, um, sounds stupid almost silly to say and obvious, but all perversions, even of the spiritual life, are 
go back to the gospel. If you got that wrong somehow, typically if there's something you're confused about way out here, it's a good idea to try to trace your way back to the gospel. And what he's doing right now with this congregation, I'm out of time, is he's delivering us all from issues we've had. And I would argue, I'll put myself out there first, we didn't necessarily, most of, I'm looking at all of you, I know all of you personally, I know most of you are not um, legalistic type people. Ah, but that's not the only perversion. That's not the only perversion. The other perversion is when we subtract God's grace from the salvation equation. And when we do that, there are whole bodies of Scripture, passages of Scripture that we've left dangling outside of the unfit now. They don't fit anymore. But yet, with our earnestness to be accurate, to show ourselves approved, we have to take that Scripture and do something with it later. And by that time, it's a mess because it's supposed to be here, but we're dealing with it here. And the flesh has to use unright works to jam it into theology out here. Does that make sense? That's unright. That's unrighteousness. That's unright. When what the Spirit's done is saying, let's trace our way back and say, we screwed it up here. All those magnificent words, telling, revealing words from Jesus Christ, they're here. What Paul was saying, like, you know, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, they're here. What we find is, and I was talking to DJ about this, this entire book could be placed right here. Yes, there are examples of people saved and maturing and all, but what are they maturing in? The gospel. What are you maturing in right now? Say, after all these years. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm getting at? This is what the Spirit's saying. He's like, Let's go back and figure out where we went wrong. There's little nooks and crannies. That's what he's doing. And it manifests itself in this principle right here, and I'll leave you with this. <clears throat> the other perversion, let's put it that way. People talk about adding to salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation, pointing to legalism. But how often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion? Subtracting from salvation. Faith Minus God's works equals salvation. How often do people talk about that one? Pointing to religions that actually subtract from or some of God's grace in saving man. Not often. Why? I would argue that most people aren't diligent the way you are. Aren't diligent enough to look circle all the way around and see this one little avenue that Satan's been using to inject false doctrines and doubt and confusion into the world regarding the gospel. You have to be diligent, don't you? Seek, you shall find. You have to look like we do. And sometimes the, 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 the crevice is this wide. And you go, that's how he's been making it in? Yeah, he's a serpent. That's how he's been making it in. And it requires diligence to get there. And there's all kinds of white noise and distractions. And, you know, as you're starting to come around, Satan's like, oh, oh he's getting close, he's getting close. You're so handsome. Right? <laughs> Next thing you're like, right? Or you get this job promotion out of the blue. Holy, what? Where did this come from? 
Well, whatever, you know, your spouse cooks you the, you know, this great meal and you get, you eat so much of it because you're a pig and you get sick. Zoom. I'm just trying to be fair to Todd, that's all, right? <laughs> Equal opportunity. So that's what he does. Anyway, I'm way over time. <laughs> way over time. All right, let's buy it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.